1: My name is Rich Schmidt. I'm here with Carol and Peter Adams. We're at Trout Lily Ranch in Newburgh. It's August 17th, 2020. Thank you both so much for joining us today. You're welcome. Uh, first question for you both. Uh, why wine?
2: Well, I think I I think it started with us traveling a lot to Europe when we were first married and discovering wine. The first time I went to Europe as a teenager, I drank a Coca-Cola the whole way through. <laughs> and so Um, We didn't, we weren't a wine drinking family, myself, and um, going to Europe was an eye-opener for us, for Peter and me, and then when we were in Burgundy, we um, noticed how similar hydrangeas, the similar plantings that were there, hydrangeas, um, apple trees, just similar things grew that we grew here, and then I think that's was that the start of how we discovered that we w- might wanna have a vineyard?
3: Well, uh, yeah. I mean, I um, I'd learned about wine earlier because my dad and grandfather were uh, not aficionados, but they liked wines, primarily German Rieslings. And um, at one point, my brother and I- Oh, that's right. My brother bought a book by a fellow by the name of Bill Massey and we all picked that book up and read it and then tried to find some of the wines and share them um, you know at family dinners and uh, uh, you know we lots of them we couldn't find or they were really uh, pretty expensive because they were all you know very notable wines but it just got us started uh, looking at wine and then as Carol said we traveled in Europe and discovered that wine was kind of the beverage of choice and uh, we're exposed to all these great restaurants and things that most kids our age didn't get a chance to see and uh, I I particularly noticed when we were in Brittany how similar Brittany was to the coastal mountains here in Oregon so you know we came back and I kind of had in my mind this question why don't people grow wine grapes in Oregon you know, and then did a little research, found out that there actually had been some grapes grown around Helvetia in particular and other parts of Oregon as well but and about that time um, I heard that a school hood uh, friend, David Adelsheim was actually getting involved in the wine growing business and so we ended up getting in touch with David and became for some fri- sort
2: of class. then. we came yeah, out well, to his, they, his house and they, we would t- taste wines or something. Yeah. I mean, this goes way back. This is
3: yeah. They they were they, one of the things they were doing was doing some wine tasting classes, and so we took the class. Kind of you know thinking, well, why not? And uh, and that just you know snowballed after that.
2: Well, and at, one, where, where, at one point, Pete, you had a Peter had a little retail wine store off of Barber Boulevard. Right. Was that before?
3: We no, that was about. Well, it was before we bought property. Yeah, way before. Oh, okay. I spent. I we, My brother and I conjured up this idea that we should be in the wine business. So, and I ended up being the one that ended up running the local little store, and he was pursuing a career in real estate, and uh, I I ended up through that process, learning more about the Oregon wine industry and some of the people in it, David Let, Dick Erath, Dick Ponzi, you know, the people that became our contemporaries in the business. And uh, I also spent, uh, and then that sort of store, we, we, we had in mind um, selling wine by the case to knowledgeable consumers. And we found out in this process that Oregon had a thing called the dock sale law. And all the people that we really wanted to sell to were already buying their wine uh, wholesale. Mm -hmm. And we realized that we really didn't have a market. And we'd selected our location on Southwest Hoffman Street, not as a retail location, but as a kind of office warehouse, not warehouse really formally, but Mm -hmm. excuse me, an office and that we would do a newsletter, and uh, my family uh, had an association or friendship with uh, James Beard, my mother, and he were childhood friends, and so we were going to use Beard as a as a mechanism for kind of helping us advertise our expertise in wine. Well it turned out you couldn't do that because the OLCC wouldn't allow oh, it. Well
2: he did write, he did write one.
3: Well he wrote one newsletter, but yeah. we couldn't publish it because. I mean, we got written up in the newspaper, but we couldn't publish the newsletter that we wanted to uh, because it just wasn't allowed, you know, and so anyway. We were
2: very naive.
3: Yeah, and but I also spent about half my time when I wasn't manning the store running around the countryside looking for a place to grow grapes because by that time I knew people, you know, in the industry who were actually had started out. David Lett had been here for... About ten years, and we ended up buying this property in '74, um, and I farmed it kind of as a, you know, to prepare the soil uh, in '75, and then we planted our first block of grapes in '76, and the balance of the site in '77.
2: We planted it ourselves.
3: Yeah, we with and we long we did.
2: chain and.
3: Uh, we, we had, had a, we had help. We had, we had, had some helpers, family members and also some crew that I hired.
2: Yeah, and but we came home at the end of the day just a wreck because we had, I had never done such physical work. <laughs> and we take our clothes off, and it, I don't know. It's like just eat and go to sleep, and then come back and do it again the next day.
3: Yeah, and at, was, at that point there was no house here or anything. It was just a piece of property and uh, I actually uh, ended up buying the property uh, because uh, David Adelsheim Adelsheim had a partner who was supposed to buy this property and the guy he backed out he couldn't do it and David asked me if I was interested and I said well let me think about it and um, I'd been searching for a long time I hadn't I mean I looked at places like where El Cove is and uh, yeah, I, I scoured the countryside for what I thought was the perfect site, and I had yet to find it. So as an interim step, I decided, well, I'll just buy this one, <laughs> we'll start here. My, I had big plans. No, it, it worked
2: uh, out great, and the Adelsides yeah. were really good friends of ours, and yeah. our girls grew up together with Lizzie, and they'd walk up the street to one another and visit one another. We had a lot of wonderful times yeah, and with Jenny and David. We
3: also, from a commercial point of view, we, f- uh, we we co-farmed our properties. We had a couple who were who worked for us, um, Bill and Terry Doan, and uh, they farmed this site. Well, I mean, once I got it prepared and planted, then we hired them to actually manage the site on a day-to-day basis. And they also managed uh, David and Junie's property um, as well. And that lasted for, I don't know, 76, 86, 90, into the mid-90s when I actually sold our, well we started then later, I guess, we're getting ahead of ourselves, it's Okay. Uh, somewhere, uh, well in, we made our first wines in 81, 82, 83, and then 84, all of those wines were made up at the Adelsheim house, at their originally original winery, so we co-wine made as well. Um, and really you have to give David credit for that because he, you know, I was, I was working full time at other jobs. And so the, the, the bulk of the work other than during harvest and when we made decisions about what we were going to do. But our production was so small that basically we just bottled everything as a single bottling. Um, but uh, have to give David and his crew credit for actually making the wine for those first four years. And then in 84, uh, well, we had a huge crop and a, also a very lousy vintage in 84. And at that point, uh, Adelsheim had run out of room and we needed to find our own space. So I ended, or Carol and I ended up buying a property in Portland from a friend of ours down on s- northwest Pettygrove and uh, established our winery there. And that was in 1985, yeah.
2: But we we bottled the 84 there, though.
3: Mm-hmm.
2: And we made a wine that was called Portland's House Wine, because our daughter's name is Portland. And I thought it was fabulous. But it was like a, the best you could do with that vintage. I mean, I thought it was fabulous just because a lot of people weren't even making wine that vintage. But I thought the label was so cute. And we sold it for very little money. But it wasn't that great.
3: Actually, a lot of it it in the end went to Trader uh, Joe's. It wasn't that great. Before Trader Joe's became a chain store. (laughs) It used to to be apparently like a wine warehouse in LA. All right,
1: so I'm going to back up just for a second here. Uh, I'm curious how you, in your head, in your mind, the progression from traveling and enjoying wine to selling wine at a shop to actually like. Buying a vineyard and planting grapes. Was there? What point did that become something you were interested in? At what, what point did it become a react? Like, did it become like I'm not just interested in wine, but I actually want to produce it?
2: There was no five-year plan.
1: <laughs> well,
2: there was no. I, yeah, together there was no five-year plan. Maybe yeah. you had a five-year plan, but I, I was not. I just, I was writing Peter's wave. Right. I always say that.
3: Well, I, um, yeah, no, I. For me, it coalesced when I heard David Adelsheim was. Um, pursuing the you know a project in the industry and then I got to know David Lett and Dick Erath and Dick Ponzi and um, after I you know met and got to know those guys I I decided that if they could do it I could do it and so um, and that would have been probably in the the early 70s 72 73 And you know I did have a five-year plan but it wasn't very specific (laughs) and this was supposed to be the first of a couple of different properties but you know I just I got so busy doing other things that I I never pursued my wine business activity on a really full-time basis I mean we did for the few years that we had our winery going and then Carol came in and actually ran the winery business side. I've always had my fingers on the grape growing and, um, but you know, to one degree or another and that's kind of my function today.
2: Well, you had your rock business, yeah. your quarry. He crushed rocks and I crushed grapes. That's what he used to say. But I, I mean, I came in, in nineteen eighty five with a newborn baby and it was nursing her in the my office, you know, I had an assistant winemaker. But we made a really good wine in 85 and we got the governor's award for it. So it was just kind of proved that this vineyard is a really good site. And it was very low tech wine production so much different than how wine's made today. We had these fruit bins and we punched it down and we, I don't know, it was just so low-tech.
3: It was pretty traditional wine traditional, Yeah, it was. All of, you know, small villages in France and Italy, basically. But Um, we
2: we would pick the grapes and then bring them into Portland. And um, our zoning was light industrial, so we could do it till two or three o'clock in the morning and not be an issue.
1: i will back to that in a second because I'm curious about your winemaking side, but I want to back up to the vineyard for a moment and talk about, you mentioned this was kind of a, a stopgap in your mind in terms of site.
3: Well, it, it, yeah, in a way, it wasn't really a stopgap. It was supposed to be one of two or three vineyards, okay. um, hoping that we would select sites that were unique and would, you know, provide good blending material for our, our wine products. And... Uh, I just never pursued it after um, this because I got so busy in the other activity. Sure.
1: So tell me about this site and about getting to know it, and and, all, and like and even even to the point of how did you how did you know how to plant it? How did you learn how to plant a vineyard and what and what to plant?
3: Well, I I, I was only really interested in planting Pinot Noir, um, and uh, but I got persuaded by others. Um, that I ought to plant some Chardonnay too, and at least. And then, you know, one of the things that I did as part of the research was, uh, at that time, uh, a gentleman who I'm sure you have are aware of, Charles Corey, was one of the instrumental people here in the early stages. And he taught a class uh, on winemaking and site selection at, at, uh, at Portland uh, Community College, and my brother and I took that. My brother wanted to be involved in this, but I, Carol and I wanted our own independent project, and so we pursued it on our own in the end. But um, the, you know, I, I at at that stage I had been reading everything I could find, you know, and the the. the in terms of actually selecting this site I you know it's a space that David had decided he would like to have and I didn't spend a lot of time thinking about about that in in other than the fact that it 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 met my criteria in terms of being south or southeast facing Um, it and and it met my criteria and it hadn't been farmed for a while um, it had been pasture land. Originally, it, it had been a, a prune orchard, but it was basically open ground. Although where we're sitting here was a wood lot, and that actually was a separate piece of property that I bought later, um, uh, including this, I guess, all the way down to the fence line. Um, and the, you know, as in terms of selecting varieties, again, it was what kind of what was available and. I didn't, uh, I mean, we knew enough about Oregon wines that we tasted that Carol and I didn't care for the wines that they were making from Vadensville. So the other option was Pomard primarily. So we planted all Pomard and then we planted um, about a third of the site to uh, FPMS 108 Chardonnay. And, you know, ten years later when you could no longer sell that Chardonnay Variety because no one wanted it. Uh, Although we made some nice wines out of it, they were kind of big and buttery and buttery and and, um, uh, uh, I mean they were they were not bad, but they uh, you know the grape just fell out of favor. And about that time, the Dijon clones were uh, becoming available. And I you know to this day I well we are planting a little Chardonnay up in here, but. We don't have the plants yet, uh, but um, I, you know, I, I'm just. It's like it's like Pinot Gris. I, you know, Pinot Gris is a nice grape and it makes nice wine, but I don't like the wines that are made here in Oregon. They end up seeming to have they 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 appear even if they don't have residual sugar. They're on the, the kind of sweet mouthfeel side, and that's not what I'm looking for in a white wine. I mean, generally speaking, if if you want it for refreshing uh, uh, you know refreshing beverage so that's why we make Sauvignon Blanc. Yeah.
1: I'm definitely gonna ask about that in a little bit.
3: Yeah.
1: You talked about the kind of the first few vintages, first few vintages and kind of co-making them with the as Tell me about, step, Carol, tell me about stepping into the, the role as winemaker. What, what did you have to learn and, and was it something that excited you, um, the idea of making wine?
2: Well I grew up in the country, with a big apple orchard and uh, picked berries as a child, so I I was familiar with like making jam, and so the thought of making wine was to me pretty similar to any kind of anything that you make from fruit. I, I so I felt comfortable doing it. I, it didn't frighten me, and also I was a cook, or a, I worked professionally as a cook at the Genoa it was no longer in existence, but um. So I, I felt I had a really strong sense of taste and deciding on when to pick the fruit I thought was one of the crucial things about wine making. And the chemistry part I learned or hired out and I slowly got to know how to do all those things. But initially it was um, picking the grapes, deciding when to pick the grapes and then nursing it through fermentation, and I don't know. It's just step by step. I I was just I just by the skin of my pants doing it. <laughs> and I would call up people, the people in the industry, and ask questions. And, and um, Oregon State. Um, gosh, what's his name? He st- is he still at Oregon State?
3: Oh, um, Re- uh, Barney, 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 Barney Watson. Barney, yeah, Barney was
2: such a help. I would send things down to them, little bottles down to them to test for me. And so I just had a lot of help from friends. And I was, at the time, I didn't know it, but I was like a woman winemaker. But you're in this kind of little bubble in Portland, especially where I wasn't going out and mixing with a lot of other winemakers, although I, there was a point where I did join kind of an association with winemakers, but I'd still be the only woman at the table. And they all spoke really loud. and. Um, it was intimidating, but um, I just kept on doing my thing. And anyways, I, I mean, at the time, I didn't realize I was I was like unique being a woman winemaker. I just figured.
3: Well, I mean, other than Susan Sokol Blosser, who really was more of a manager than a winemaker, uh, Carol's was probably one of the first female winemakers, if not the first in Oregon. But. Uh,
2: it was, I don't know, I mean, it was just, it was at a time when women were, I mean, women's liberation, and I don't, it was like, I didn't realize I was doing anything special, but I just knew that I, at 28 years old, people, you know, you need to listen to me. I have a voice and you need to listen to me. And I'm not a child anymore. And I don't it was kind of like, I can do this kind of thing. And I had a father who, was not real encouraging. He, he thought. Um, I mean, if I wanted to do something, he maybe was discouraging about it. Mm-hmm. And I wanted to. I don't know if, he, if he's still alive. When I was a winemaker, was he? You
3: know, I'm not sure. I don't know. Had
1: yeah, the idea to prove that you could, though.
2: I don't know. Maybe there's part of me just this. I, I'm, I'm a Scorpio. I'm competitive. <laughs>
4: <laughs> yeah. yeah.
2: <laughs> and Fanny, we have this book where we we're reading our horoscopes just yesterday, and um, that's, I like to win, and I didn't know that about me, but I do like to win. And yeah, you know, food, I think also food's very important to us. Food is very, very mm-hmm. important to us, and so having these dinner parties where I would cook for four days, Julia Child, I learned everything from Julia Child, and and. And so that, that, that to me, the wine and food, that they were just so compatible. And so I, I would cook anything. And so to me, making wine was just like magic of that.
3: Well, also at that stage of, of this, the industry here, um, a lot of the services that are available today didn't exist. So we were getting them from one another and also getting them from OSU and Barney and there were a couple others, a fellow by the name of Bill Nelson, who was kind of a consultant. and um, Not that he, I mean, he, he didn't have credentials any more than the rest of us did. So, uh, most everyone that was in this industry at that time, other than maybe David Lett, Charles Curry, and I can't remember who else went to Davis. But there, there were very few people that actually had professional training. We all came by it by by kind of a guts and glory, we can do this, you know? Other people have done it, what's holding us back? And I think that's how Carol felt too. I mean, yeah, The first she,
2: time I made sparkling she wine. could cook
3: anything and why not, you know?
2: The first time I made sparkling wine, um, Dickie Rath said, well, Carol, have you opened a bottle yet? And he said he wanted to see if it worked, you know? And, and I just made it on the, we had a railroad, um, a train that went by our winery and so it kind of riddled the wine every time the the train (laughs) went by it riddled the wine and it worked I mean we still have some of the bottles left but it was like so much fun to like take something that you had to buy but now you could make Mm -hmm. and that kind of um, I can't remember the name of that author but he wrote books about um, foraging and to me this was like another kind of way of foraging you could now we didn't have to buy it we could make it Mm -hmm. That, that was pretty exciting
3: Another form of homesteading. Yeah. yeah.
1: Grow it, and make it, right? Yeah. Make it. Carol, I'm curious. You mentioned kind of, sort of, seeing your pants, winemaking, uh, and kind of learning sort of the, the, the some sort of the chem- the chemistry aspects along the way. I- I'm curious. Uh, as you started making your first couple of batches, what 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 surprised you about winemaking? What was what were the biggest challenges for you, uh, with your cooking background? What what was different about winemaking than than other kinds of cooking or or, or fruit work you had done?
2: Well, um, the physical labor, that was pretty, and I could lift, I can, um, I mean, I could lift empty wine barrels, you know, and that. So that was the physical aspect of it. Uh, um, I guess the fact you don't want it to go bad, you don't want the wine to go bad in such large quantities. So that was a little scary. And, the things that you didn't like smelling, and I mean the things that you had to deal with, the uh, like SO two that was you didn't like smelling, or or I don't know. I haven't thought about this in a long time. <laughs> <laughs> but I did break my I did break my arm in the winery by falling off a ladder. So that was that aspect of of the the um, kind of the things you did that could endanger you and climbing around on top of the tanks and punching down and you don't want to fall in or anything like that. But <laughs> And at the end of the day, oh, I know, when we were burning those, the, the, the things in the barrel Silver wicks? D- Silver wicks, and that, that was like, that was kind of scary. The things that were dangerous.
1: And, and Peter, tell me about uh, the farming aspect for you. Uh, sort of similar question. Uh, what, what was was there anything unique about farming wine grapes? Anything you had to learn along the way that was surprising oh, to you?
3: A, a tremendous number of things. Except, that I, I mean, I'm not sure I can recount them all. Sure. You know, and you know, even though I've um, been involved in the farming, um, I actually, subsequent to planting, haven't done a lot of it myself. Um, it's we've always had people working for us that have actually taken care of the vineyard and um, I mean well, our first, first we
2: yeah. pruned the um, chardonnay and it was like pruning apple trees they were so robust and the
3: yeah so you like, called them apple chardonnay yeah well they our chardonnay used to be planted up in the upper far kind of corner of the vineyard and there is a a natural draw there and there's also a um, it's tiled but there's a stream that comes down the hill uh, intermittent stream and so the area that carol's talking about the vines get lots of water and they were very very vigorous and so they they you know they of all the vines in the vineyard they grew the fastest the biggest and um, not necessarily the best grapes but they you know they were they were hardy plants and in good shape, because they got plenty of moisture. Um, I, th- I think probably the, the the thing that I understood the least was the, 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 the farming techniques that you absolutely needed to be on top of, like your spray program. And since I didn't always do that myself, our first couple of years um, were pretty much disasters. I mean, what little fruit we had, you know, either went to the birds or became unusable because it was mildewed. Um, And the bird challenge in the early years, you know, our climate has changed, uh, or I don't know what I want to call it, I mean, without being political, but um, you know, in the first, the first ten years that we had this vineyard, we were picking in October, and for as long as I can remember now, back in the early 2000s, we've been picking in September. So to a degree our climate changed, or we've learned how to grow our grapes more effectively such that they ripen a little earlier.
2: But this has always been an early ripening vineyard.
3: Yeah, and and this is an early ripening vineyard as well. So, you know, that was a change that occurred, kind of we didn't really see it, but looking back you see it is a very dramatic well um, and when people asked was it a
2: good harvest that to me that meant did you pick before the rains came did you pick before the birds came you know, that's what that was a good harvest
1: I'm curious about uh, the business of the, of the time of what now you have a product wine product to sell there's not really a whole lot of an industry yet so how did you go about selling wine how did you go about Finding customers.
3: Well, we we were part of a group that uh, used Stephen Carey um, as a sales agent, and uh, Reuben. Reuben Rich. Rich. Was it
2: Reuben Rich? Yeah. And yeah, we so we traveled. I we traveled a lot, or I traveled a lot. We
3: we spent most of our sales efforts were outside the uh, the state of Oregon, although we did sell. To people that we knew in the Portland area um, and you know so it mostly was through that vehicle and not sure what else to say well but of all of all our skills our sales skills are the least <laughs> which is probably true of a lot of well not the people in the industry now but back then most of us were intrigued by the process of growing the grapes and making the wine and while selling it they'll come you know if you make it they'll come um
2: well they did come in the 80 for 85
3: yeah it was pretty on and off though i mean you know and then robert parker entered the scene and that that kind of changed everything in the sense that we did get some notoriety but oftentimes he was very critical of oregon wines and but,
2: but we were like the new kid on the block and people want to know about the new kid on the yeah. block and, and I, there was a point where we were a force in the industry I think and, and we were making good wine and people recognized that and we were lumped together with the people that were making good wine and we participated we were more active in the wine association right. and I wrote a newsletter for them or wrote some little newspaper there, I wrote articles about the gossip, you know, Oregon wine gossip. <laughs> so, that was kind of fun, but um, I don't know, it's just, we were having fun doing it, I think.
3: Yeah, there was a fair amount of stress, though, too. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> As you say, trying to figure out how to sell it was a real challenge. Uh, I, I, you know, I think a lot of the people that were in the industry, too, I mean, i I, i I don't like this character as a characterization, but um, I wasn't because I was pretty much—I I mean, well, let me back up. What I was going to say is a lot of a lot of the people in the industry were kind of, you know, bordering on being the hippie type who wanted to go back to the land. Um, but most uh, a lot of us weren't really hippies in the sense that we you know we worked for Tektronix or I worked for uh, Price Waterhouse and then I worked later for a company called Esco Corporation and um, you know and it was only later on that I went out into my on my own business and got into this rock business thing that I still am doing um, but you know, the the dream was kind of like let's get back to the land and be farmers, and um, and yet we knew we had to sell the product. So I mean, you know, kind of like I don't know, it was dangerous, and it still is dangerous. It's it's it, it's a tough road to hoe selling wine. Um, so.
1: I'm curious in, the, in those years. Was there any awareness of Oregon as an industry? At what point did Oregon Oregon as a wine industry become sort of something outside of the state that people would recognize?
3: Well, it was took a long time. Yeah. Uh, well, I think, um, I mean, I think a lot of it, at least from from my recollection, kind of started with Parker. Mm-hmm. You know, once Parker started talking about Oregon wines, then people started listening. Mm-hmm. But, you know, the only people that were listening were the wine aficionados. Uh, People who were collectors or or wanted good quality wine, but you know, subscribed to a newsletter, and yet the availability of Oregon wines was still very, very limited. Although it was becoming a little more prevalent, you know. And today, I still think what we only represent something like one percent of the of the entire wine world, if you will. So we're almost insignificant. Um, so how do you find out about that? I <laughs> You
2: know but remember there was this point where we were like proud that we were making wine in Oregon because people started to recognize that we were yeah. making good wine, and I don't know if that was the tasting in, you know in in France or
3: well let's yeah we went to we went to France with uh, um, Governor goldschmidt. goldschmidt. Um, and by that time, so that what, when was that? Was that 80? Well, the girls were small. So it was, it was about 86 the, or 87. Was it was in the 80s. Yeah, 88. So I guess that would be about the time that, you know, when, and when, it was later when, than that. When, it was later than 80. When Robert came, you know, to Oregon, that also was a milestone in terms of probably international recognition when the French French started having an interest in growing grapes in Oregon, you know, outside, I mean, what Frenchman would do that, you know, for Christ's sakes? I mean, <laughs> that's, you know, that that was pretty much unheard of. Um, so, uh, I would say that's about the time that maybe we started getting some serious recognition.
2: Yeah. Press.
1: How about uh sort of finding places that wanted to buy your grapes. I
3: know you didn't make all the all, all wine from all of your grapes. You're still about finding, well, finding buyers. Well, we we did for, um, when we were in, it, it had our own winery and doing that, um, we used all our grapes, so we never sold them. We didn't start selling them until I, when, when I, when Carol and I decided we didn't want to be in the wine business per se anymore in about 1996, and I sold the wine business to, to um, Paul, Hart. Paul Hart, and we became shareholders in Rex Hill. So at, uh, I've lost the trend. I mean, I've forgotten what your question was, but... About selling grapes. Oh, about selling the grapes. So from up, up to the time that we sold to Rex Hill, we didn't sell grapes. We used them all ourselves. And then Rex Hill uh, at some point started selling the Chardonnay because they didn't want to make FPMS 108 uh, and that's about the time we started hearing that that clone was you know seriously going out of f- favor and uh, then we sold Rex Hill uh, to A to Z I think in 75 or 76 and at that time I took the vineyard, up to that point, it was under lease to Rex Hill. And then um, at that time, I took it back over and it happened that Sterling Fox, who was the vineyard manager at that time for Rex Hill, decided to go out on his own. Um, He he, he wasn't interested in growing or managing large vineyards that were just production properties. Mm -hmm. And um, so he offered to manage this site along with others and uh, that's when we started, you know, having to think about selling grapes. Because one, we didn't have a winery, and two, um, you know, we were- Well, we weren't interested in
2: making wine. I mean, yeah, I was- I, Well, at I, I first we like weren't-
3: Yeah, we I weren't- was over it. We weren't really planning on making wine. And then in that process of getting to know Sterling better and. And, he lives
2: across the street
3: um the street. his wife or at that time girlfriend or more than girlfriend but friend well actually it was a transition it took a few years but anyway he convinced me that we should try making wine again and so in 2008 i hired kelly i i, I got a winery license and we got uh legalized at 12th and Maple, if you will, or went through the process, getting a federal permit and state permit. And uh, we made a little bit of wine at 12th and Maple in 2008, and then I think in 2010 we moved to the Carl Winemaker Studio, and we're there from 2010 to, what, about 2000,
2: I haven't written years down ago. in my, in my, know, oh uh, my oh.
3: 2013, 14, somewhere in there. You'd asked a question, and I and I really got off track. But it, it, the um, oh, the selling of grapes. Um, you know, for the most part, what happened was we kind of transitioned into working with Kelly and Sterling, mm-hmm. and Sterling managed to to the degree that we needed to sell grapes, sell the grapes for us, and it was only in the last couple of years, really that selling grapes was becoming a bit of an issue and we were concerned that this year we were going to end up with a lot of crop that we had no home for and now because of the poor set that we've had everyone's discovering they don't have enough grapes and so it looks like the spot market is pretty firm and Sterling's comfortable that he can sell all the grapes we have so
2: all the graves we
3: want to sell. Want to sell, yeah. And, well, we could probably sell everything if we wanted to. Right. We'd want to not make any wine at all. But, um, the, you know, so the market, but it's a little circumstantial because, of, I mean, we 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 definitely are at a stage where there are too many graves planted worldwide, not just in Oregon, but Oregon is in the same situation. And... Um, so somebody's going to be tearing out vineyards. I hope not to tear this out because... Well, we did tear a
2: portion of the vineyard
3: out. Well, we have, yeah. I mean, we've, we've had phylloxera for 10, 15 years. I mean, and we've just managed it along the way. And as we've had to where, where we got sections that were not... you know, you, It wasn't cost-effective to manage it anymore. We pulled out vines. And so the whole section out here has not been replanted. And this we pulled out more recently, but decided to replant it with three varieties. One of which we grew before, uh, Gamay Noir. So we have a little Gamay Noir, some Trousseau, which we're hoping will make a, a, uh, you know, a rosé. And um, then we're going to plant a little Chardonnay, just to have a a selection of white wines.
2: Well, we also.
3: And then we've grafted, grafted over to some we've grafted some of our older Pinot that's still in good shape uh, to Sauvignon Blanc. And you know we're finding that in the industry that you know people like Pinot but it's expensive and it doesn't sell as well as some of the other grapes, particularly the white wines. So we're sort of shifting our production to try to match the market a little better. And Sauvignon Blanc is not exactly the most favorite wine of the world. But it's a great wine for Asian food. And it's also very crisp and refreshing. And it doesn't have the residual sugar problems that I mentioned about uh, Pinot Gris. you know, I don't you know, I don't like I mean I I, I admire and, and in quotes love wonderful Rieslings from Germany, but that you know, those are very unique wines. Uh, generally speaking I don't like wines that are sweet or taste sweet. I want them to complement the food they're being served with.
1: So you mentioned getting getting back into production in two thousand eight, and after after Sterling talked you into
3: it, what? Well, I, I, <laughs> he, he did talk us into he, it. He, did. he he was he was trying to promote his future right. wife's career. That's true. But also, it it wasn't like he talked me into it. I mean, we just sold Rex Hill, and I you know, and and in that process, I, I mean, I used to buy wine from Rex Hill at you know a producer's price, if you will, and. And so we no longer had a source of wine. And oh yeah, maybe that's part and of it. <laughs> part, part of it was I, I I didn't want to lose my contact with, with the industry and and the winemaking process and I, you know it's just something that's uh, it's part of me. I mean, I in a way, I can't help it. You know, I'm addicted. But and we were
2: we were at it. Well, we started out as Peter F. Adams. Yeah. You know, Peter F. Adams. And then we changed to Adams when I was down there because I got tired of people calling up and saying, "Can I see where's to Peter? Peter? Where's Peter?" And yeah. we changed it to Peter. And then we changed to Trout Lily when we started working with um,
3: Kelly. Yeah,
2: Kelly. And we these are wildflowers that grow right down here, right underneath these oak trees.
3: Yeah, and we changed the name because a, a few of our customers were, uh, on occasion, uh, labeling their their wine you know with a vineyard designation and they were using Adam Adams vineyard which was the name I grow grapes under and I didn't want to come back on the market with Adams vineyard winery or Adams Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. vineyard whatever it might have been for a couple of reasons one that and two it's also very close to Adelsheim and although you know we're all friends and all that, there's no, uh, there's no reason for it other than I just you know I figured well, you know it should be a name that separates. Well, I just apart. think we're
2: just starting another chapter. Yeah. Why not do something a little bit different? And yeah.
3: Um, We've got a lot of mixed feedback about this name.
2: <laughs> we do.
3: What's it? Ha- yeah. What's it have to do with grapes? No. Trout? I, They're not grapes.
2: No. 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 <laughs> Well, Mad Violet is a combination of two different wildflowers. So yeah. I don't I don't I don't I don't I think people normally think that the label's pretty and I don't yeah. Fanny's the one who sells the wine, right, Fanny? Sort of. <laughs> <laughs> Jacob sells more
4: than I
2: do. Yeah. No,
4: there's just a general like people you it's not an obvious label, like Adams was named after us as our family name, so it's like it's very straightforward. With Trout Lily it gives us an opportunity to tell our story while explaining the label. So I think it's actually pretty clever. Even if people get, like, I don't see a fish on the label. <laughs> yeah. But you get to say. You know, <laughs> we do have fish down here. Our park. on the farm and it's, you know, it's a really, goes it grows at a specific time of year. There's four flowers, one for every member of the family.
2: Oh yeah, that's the other thing, yeah.
4: So it gives you an opportunity to sell. Yeah. <laughs> sell the story.
1: When you started, when you started trout lily and started making wine again, uh, what, were the, what were your kind of goals? Did you have, did you have a, a goal in mind in terms of uh, what, what would be a, considered a success?
3: Well, I mean, sell all the wine we make, you <laughs> know, make good wine, and not, well, but yeah. First of all, well, yeah. I mean, first of all, your your goal is always to make the highest quality wine you can um but well, also uh, we are and that's basically our goal i guess and Ke- i we're, don't we're
2: very happy with
3: yeah uh,
2: kelly and our relationship and how she makes our wine it's yeah, very so similar to how i would have made it except she's much more knowledgeable
3: and has well and she's i mean she's professionally trained that's right yeah. i mean she's
2: got this yeah
3: Well, and plus the industry's train, I mean, what's available in terms of uh, uh, winemaking technology today versus what we had. I mean, I'm sure some of it already existed, but it was localized to places like Napa Valley, where there was really a serious industry. Up here, the industry was serious, but it was so spread out, there really wasn't any way for a laboratory, say, to come and establish a, a relationship here locally that would function very well because um, they just wouldn't have enough business. Mm-hmm. You know, today they've got that, uh, and so you would have had to send all your samples to California, and who knows what happens to them, unless you carry them, hand carry them down. Um, and so, and plus the the availability of edu, you know, educational resources is much greater too with Chemeketa and. Um, the fact that well just that primarily I guess and you know they're more similar the industry even is putting on seminars um and there's a lot of research being done at OSU now that some of it was being done back then but it was pretty limited now it's a much more robust program and you you guys the Linfield's involved in the business and um, or the educational business related to the wine industry. You have a wine program. You know, that didn't exist in 1970.
1: <laughs> what are some of the other, other changes you've seen in Oregon? I'm, I'm particularly curious uh, between when you sort of stopped production and started production again, what were the biggest jumps forward in 2008 that you noticed as you got got back into that part of the industry?
3: Well, for me, I think it's mostly the the breadth of people that are in the industry now you know it's uh, I mean I I lost touch with most everyone you know today the people that are leading the industry are people I don't know you know yeah so um, I mean that's not true totally because you know the most some of them are still involved David Adelsheim is still involved in his way and I'm sure Dick Ponzi is to a degree. and Well, his kids are all involved. And the kids are. But they're, they're you know, so it's the second generation now that's starting to take over, as you were point, pointing out, to the extent that they're staying in the business. Um, but the leaders, uh, truly, the, the, I mean, some of it, like Kevin Chambers has been around forever. Okay, but, um, you know, some of the other people, uh, I really, I, I don't know. I've never met them even, you know. So, and we've never been, I mean, I've, early on we were, we were very active in the Oregon Wine Growers Association and, and the, the group of people that were promoting the production of high quality Pinot Noir. And then once we sold to Rex Hill, we kind of drifted away from that because we weren't in the business, so to speak, on right. a day-to-day basis. And now we're, I sort of feel like an outsider in a way, you know, it's like, I don't know a lot of the people in the industry, and I wish I knew more. But I, you know, I only have so many hours in the day, so gotta concentrate on what I really want to do or need to get done.
1: Carol, what about for you? Are there any are there any notable not- notable changes for you?
2: Just that I'm not. I don't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. I just got worn out. Um, I think. I think well, what's great now is there's a lot more women in the industry, a lot of support, and that's great. But um, been there, done that, got the t-shirt. That's kind of how I felt, and when I stopped doing. it. And David, um, Paul Hart, somebody said, "Well, why, don't you miss it, Carol?" And and Paul Hart said, "She wants a life. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was just so consuming, and I would travel, and the kids would be little, and I." Be in New York or something and you know, them crying on the phone or something, or we'd go to, I mean, now that it wasn't great to go on those trips because it was kind of interesting, but, um, and then going to France with, and having your kids crying on the phone, we miss you mom, and that was hard, so. Yeah, I just, I think I just burned out. And so I was happy that, and the fact that we get along well with Kelly and she makes the product that we really like and we can just enjoy it. I mean, try to sell it, but we can enjoy it. And then having our children come on board, having Fanny and her husband and just, and our other daughter who um, is interested. It's really great, gratifying. And I always think about the French, why get in this business if you're not, you can't hand it down to somebody. And I've, I'm glad that they're, they have interest in it because maybe there's a future for this vineyard.
3: Well, there is. There yeah, is. I mean, we it, it produces good grapes and we've made some,
2: why I mean of a uh, future in our family yeah. that stays in our family.
3: Yeah.
1: You talked about being being pleased with what Kelly does with with your wines. I'm I'm curious. How how do you describe uh, a Trout Lily Ranch wine? What what is unique about this place? What do you see reflected in the bottle?
2: I see it having really good fruit, really good fruit, and it's really a, a nicely balanced wine. That's that's important to us. A wine that's going to have a aging potential. Wine that doesn't show its process—that wine is that's left alone—and it's like it's like when you have a baby, the doctor doesn't do the work; you do the work. You know, it's the grapes that are doing the work, and we're just here to kind of nursing nursing it along. And and I also think she's she's yeah, it's low tech. It's not not a lot of processing, and the, and. Like our acacia, the wine is made. This is made in acacia barrels, and um, it makes such a difference in the Sauvignon Blanc. And our barrels that we pick are really wonderful barrels. And I just have everything we try to do is top notch, and using the best ingredients. I was just like cooking; you have to use good ingredients, and we have good ingredients here.
1: Obviously, Oregon has—you've seen a lot of growth in Oregon, and and uh, and there's much more notoriety, much more, much more of an international uh, knowledge of the industry. But I'm curious—in uh, selling wine, you talked about selling wine now. How is it different? Uh, is it harder now with more wineries, or is it easier because there's more attention paid to Oregon?
2: Answer that,
3: Fanny. <laughs> we need, we need um, Jacob to answer that question. I would say it's harder because not only are there more Oregon wineries you don't we 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 can't stand out as much you know because there are more of the same or similar and in addition to that there's just a multitude of additional product on the shelf today that didn't well there's always been a lot of wine out there but you know it's there's just there's more effort to bring in Less expensive wines from Europe and and um, not so much Chile, but it, and those areas are more of interest because of the really fine wines. Mm-hmm. The less expensive wines aren't very good, and therefore they don't they don't sell either. Um, but I just think that the just the, the number of skews out there are so many. And uh, well, for instance, uh, try you. You used to be able to go in and talk to the guy that buy bought the wine at the grocery store, and now if you you go to Zupans, they tell you, they don't really want to talk to you. They just want to order your wine through apparently grape estates now versus Oregon wine distribution country Oregon wine country distribution. So the the ability to actually get to the people that are going to buy the product is getting harder. Um, and well, and
2: the, so what Fannie has done, uh, social media is playing a part now, yeah. especially with COVID-19, and and. Um,
3: we're, we're I guess we're, we do we talk just, we're about trying
2: to be more direct to con- the consumer in our sales. And that's one of the big, yeah. that's, I think that's a, a big difference in how we used to sell our wine. Mm-hmm.
3: Well, we used to direct the consumer, but the consumer were the people that were selling it. I mean, it, you know, it's it like back then the consumer base was the wholesalers mm-hmm. because they were the ones that were interested and they could go out and sell it to the, the local businesses because they were enthusiastic about it now they've got so many products that they're trying that they're being asked to sell it's hard for them to even cover the bases and so direct consumer now direct to consumer now is really direct to consumer which is where it should have been all along but you know it's 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 the evolution of the industry i think more than it is um, uh, you know i mean it's it's just yeah it's an evolution i don't know how to explain it so what does the what
1: does Oregon wine look like to you as in, in 2020? What does the industry look like now and, and what have the effects been of, of COVID 19 uh, that you've seen on the industry?
3: Well, I mean we're we're again kind of remote, but we've we've had some good results because we're getting more sales through social media, but you know, being able to go to the grocery store and sell wine is impossible and no restaurants are buying wine because they're all closed. It's pretty mostly. bleak.
2: And I think a lot of people are producing less wine this coming harvest because of that. And no, it's bleak.
3: Well, I mean, it's bleak right now because of the of the of the the virus. But also, the the you know, wine consumption is trending downward in the U.S. So it's not. It's it maybe not bleak, but it's you're right. It's not a super positive picture at the moment.
2: Well, I'm talking more about COVID, that's what I'm just talking about
3: that. Yeah, Yeah, but no, wine sales in general, uh, well, Oregon wine sales are up dramatically and have been for several years, but nationally, wine sales and alcohol sales are trending downward. So consumption per capita is declining based on, I think, mostly health issues and you know, I, I, I don't get involved in the politics particularly, but this whole move right now to have the, the national dietary recommendations changed uh, to say, uh, I'm not sure it's not good, but it's bad for the industry, where, you know, the feds are saying, well, we're going to change the rules now. Men should only drink one glass of wine a day but you know from a personal point of view I can attest that that's probably a good idea. <laughs> so. But on the other hand it's not good for wine sales. <laughs> so I mean it's kinda like Mothers Against Drunk Driving it's if it's not one thing it's another. Uh, there, uh, you know, there's a, I think there's a, a good portion of the American population that really believes that alcohol is not only bad for you but it's unacceptable you know culturally and or um socially
2: there was a point where i thought making wine was it gave people pleasure you know they they would come up to me and say oh we had this bottle for our daughter's birthday or for you know for a wedding or it was a special occasion and and then there got to be a point where like should i feel bad that you know people I'm making a product that's like cigarettes, you know, that aren't good for people. I, I, I mean, I I don't really feel that way, but the thought has occurred to me.
3: Well, I think the bottom line is, moderation is good,
2: you know. <laughs> well, so many yeah. people now. I mean, the kids are so much better about drinking and and not driving drunk, you know, and taking an Uber home or. Uh, they're so much better about that.
3: It's so. becoming part of our culture. Yeah. I mean You know, so, I mean, all those, all those things, I mean, those are, the, those are the real changes, the underlying changes. Societal that, changes, yeah. That, that, that we, as in, individual producers, and even we as citizens, really have no impact on. I mean, you could say you're totally against it, and you could go out there and yell and scream all day long, and you're not going to change the trend. You know, so it's these are things we have to learn to live with, and I don't think wine is going to go out of favor totally, but there may be less room in it for uh, as many brands as we have today. You know, in the future than there there was ten years ago. You know, that'll change, and people will either grow tired of being in the business or the difficulties of selling the wine or whatever and they'll get out and, you know, but there's still room for good product, I think, anywhere. And I think the one advantage Oregon has going for it is that we are blessed with an area of the world, as long as the climate doesn't get too hot, uh, where we can grow really, really high quality fruit. And we do it all the time and have been doing it for several hundred years, ever since our pioneer forefathers got here. You know, so I, I, I don't think it's bleak in that sense, uh, you know, because we're always going to, or I mean, as long as the world doesn't again change true dramatically, um, you know, we're, we're going to be able to make high-quality fruit and that means we'll make high-quality fruit products, including wine. And they will stand out.
1: about for the two of you what's what do you what do you see as you look ahead for your own future as you admit a, a potential project down the road any, anything else on the horizon here at trout
3: lily Ranch? big vegetable garden yeah, be yeah.
2: <laughs> Well, we talk about what, what, well, what, what I, we might plant in like the yeah. unplanted areas what we might grow yeah.
3: <coughs> we're I mean I I have this uh, I guess my dream would be that we figure out a way to preserve this property for agricultural use that slowly shifts from just wine production to production of other things that we can grow and to do it on a much more intensified basis I'm, unfortunately I'm not going to be here to see this through but I believe that the future of agriculture in the world is going to be going backwards in a sense in that industrial chemical based agriculture is not sustainable and we're gonna have to learn to grow more of our food and the products we consume locally um, and you know become more attuned to the seasonality of, of real life and to do that You're going to find out, you're going to find vegetable gardens sprouting up in urban settings in rural settings like this and you know, some people will grow more fruit, some people will grow grapes, some people will grow just vegetables and uh, so I kind of like to see this be kind of a, I I don't see us having a lot of animals although I would like to be able to do that on this property because it's just not big enough. And animals are a whole nother element to the agricultural space. But um, I would like to see us, you know, densely planted, <laughs> but with, not with a monocrop, I guess, is part of it. Yeah.
2: yeah, that's, we have hazelnuts and vineyards out here. and It's really pretty much monocrop, which always isn't a good thing.
1: your words of wisdom be to someone who wanted
3: to get their start in the Oregon wine industry. Uh, run, run yeah, run, yeah, yeah, exactly. Uh-oh. Yeah. Run, run, run. It depends on what you're yeah. I, I you know my the the group that runs our rock crushing business uh, uses a a system called the entrepreneurial operating system. It's a a, a book written by a guy that's a, a sort of a management system, but we've adopted it, and it actually works. And one of the quotes in it is, "Is if you know what your objectives are, um, and you, 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 you've, you've set that down on paper, and you've, you really understand it, it helps you make decisions, particularly when uh, um, shiny, sparkly stuff comes along okay and what I would say is just what Carol said that is if you're not intent uh, on being in the in the alcohol business and if you haven't worked for somebody else for about 25 years before you get into your own version of that business then your your goals and objectives should be able to tell you that when somebody says you really ought to start growing wine growing wine grapes and making wine that you will Run, 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 fast. <laughs> well, yeah. I, I, I mean, I think there's room for anybody that that has a passion and I, I, has, well, a, I, a, has a a strong sense of direction. I think you realize
2: it's a lifestyle choice. Yeah. Well, this vineyard would not take care of our lifestyle, and so. Um, but if a young couple want to, I, I always think about. Um, John Paul because he says he'd tell me Carol when I need some money I go out and sell some wine and and I mean that was like a perfect answer a perfect thing and he's really good at that he's really good at selling his wine but um it is a lifestyle it should be a lifestyle choice and he should be happy with the lifestyle it produces and if you're not if, if you just have to realize that
3: yeah unless you're gonna be on the uh, you know on the on the very large production high volume side of the business I mean you've got to and in in my mind that's bigger than any of the businesses that exist in Oregon today I mean if you really want to make money in any uh, almost any industry you have to be one of the top three you know and, uh, oh, and that's and a that if you if you look at Gallo and look at um, whoever else is up there, I can't think of. I mean, they're foreign companies. that are all now conglomerates. That I don't. They like Diageo and whatever. The, you know, some of the names that don't roll off your tongue because you don't pay any attention to them unless you read the Wall Street Journal and see their names mentioned, which I do. <laughs> so, but you know, unless you're way up there, uh, it's. It, I mean there's always room for mom and pop stuff I guess. I you know I hate but if if you're an industrial kind of person and you want the lifestyle Carol's talking about you're going to have to work for one of those big companies. You know or or own one of them.
2: Oh the other thing yeah you you know the expression about being in the wine business.
3: Yeah. What is it? Oh it takes a it.
2: Takes you dig a big hole or it takes a lot of money. What is it? Oh. No it takes a big
3: fortune
1: to make a small fortune.
2: Yeah. Yeah. yeah yeah you dig a big hole and especially when we started out we dug a big hole because uh, we had to have we had to create our own winery from scratch we had to build our own plant our own vineyard to get the grapes now you can do custom crushing you can buy your grapes it's such easy you can do it with such a much smaller yeah. investment that's a big
3: change well and that's that's where all the competition comes in is that you've got all these people that are virtual wineries like we are I mean we're a virtual winery today we don't we don't have a winery facility, we have our, we hire it done, you know, and, and that's fine. I mean, I think there's no reason that that doesn't work too, it's just, it isn't exactly what we signed up for, you know.
2: No, but um, I mean, the, all, you know, all those but, tanks that we had to buy and all those, permin- yeah. I mean, all this stuff, all the equipment, it was like a huge investment.
3: Yeah, no, I mean, if we had our druthers, I mean, we'd, we'd be a, a, a Ponzi or an Adelsheim or, or what have you. Uh, but as a as it is we we had other choices um, or there were other choices for us to make that were higher on the priority list so we remained kind of a mom-and-pop operation and you know i mean i there, we don't we actually we don't even have enough ground to physically grow enough grapes to make a large enough business to really support even a family. I mean, we'd have to buy grapes too. So it's like you know, it, we're kind of caught in between. But well, it's it, it's our choice. That you know, it's what we decided to do. Was it a hobby? No, it's not really a hobby. It's a real business, but, I know, it's, but it's you it's, know. Um, it, you know, it well it's a it's a matter of commitment it, you know how much you can put into a particular effort, and it's also you know it we you know we just you got to get out there and sell the product basically
2: yeah yeah
1: you guys are just ahead of the curve on the gig gig economy you had like the gig economy down before it was before it was a real thing, so you're just <laughs> ahead of your time.
3: Yeah, I seem to be that way on a lot of things, like I, uh, one of my thoughts for doing a tasting room around here was, uh, you know, three or four years ago, but it came to the surface with all these guys, with the family, two years ago, was to use a shipping container to make a little sales kiosk, and uh, I was looking at Wine Business Monthly's Wine Daily. Report or whatever, you know, the thing that comes out a couple, three times a week. Um, and the main ad and the whole damn thing was an ad for kiosks that are made out of shipping containers for the wine business, you know. So if i just I'm gonna done that. Gotta write down faster. Yeah. <laughs> That's
2: right. You gotta do that. Yeah.
3: Um,
1: so, so I'm curious for you, last question I have for you. Uh, I'm curious. Uh, You've, you've been together a long time, you've had a business together a long time. I'm curious, what's the secret to success when you're married and also business partners in an industry like this?
2: Well, we used to fight. <laughs> <laughs> and then there got to be a point, I said, Oh mean, Peter would come home at night and he and he'll kind of questioned me about what went on at the, at the winery or something. And I didn't like that. I didn't like being kind of
3: second bossed around. Guess. The second guess. Second
2: guess. <laughs> Anyway, and so there got to be a point. Where I said we can't do this anymore. It's hard on the kids, you know. So we just stopped doing that at nighttime. And um, but Peter's always been supportive of what I've done. I do.
3: Well, and but you've we're been both
2: stubborn and we both we both argue a lot. Me as well.
3: What? I say you've been supportive supportive of me as well. That's you know? true. I don't, that's, you know, that's a tough question because, uh, you know, so many of our friends are divorced and, um, you know, how we've managed to stay together, I don't know, you know, we just have and, you know, it's, I think it's good, I mean, I prefer it this way myself, you know, I'd hate to go out and start dating at 76. (laughs) even though i guess a lot of people do that you know um it's
2: well i was asked a friend um how, you know she was in the wine business too she ran a taste she ran the tasting room at um the people that make sparkling wine in dundee um argyle? argyle yeah she was great and i guess she got divorced at some point so how did you know you wanted wanted to get divorced because i wanted him dead <laughs> <laughs> you know, I know I never felt that way about Peter. I never wanted <laughs> him dead. <so. sighs>
1: that's a fantastic answer. I think you have to stick there. Well, that's yeah. all, all the questions that I have for you. Is there anything I didn't ask today that I should have asked? Anything we didn't cover that we should have covered? I have a free open mic here at the end.
3: Yeah, so. I don't know. Um,
4: I, I would uh, say. Just to go back to the how you guys have made it work, Mom. What is it that you said at your 50th anniversary party? We've always just let each other do what we want, and I think that goes for your mutual support of each other. Like, Dad has these harebrained ideas (laughs) that I think a lot of women would be like, no. And just
2: oh yeah, one time he said, uh, Carol, I bought an airplane, and my my niece said, or your niece, uh, Heidi. So I like, Carol, I think there's a Prada purse in there for you.
3: There's a what? Prada purse. Oh, oh in there for <laughs> you. I have
2: yet to buy my Prada purse. But anyway, just the fact that I'm Peter. You
4: guys, yeah. Peter
2: gets away with a lot of mischief. <laughs> and so I have him over a barrel. And, uh, you know, like, oh, I suggest I buy a piano. Well, it just seems like really good payback because our kids are so annoying
4: when they come yeah. <laughs> <money. Yeah. laughs> um, No, but I think there's a mutual respect involved when you guys let each other do these projects and you mom, you've been supported in a way that you've been able to do a lot of creative endeavors and have a lot of freedom in that
2: sense. You guys yeah, I have my I have my own life. I have my own projects that I do and so Peter does his projects, I do my projects. And um, we both there's certain things that we both like to do like eat well and watch certain things on T V together and I don't know. We
1: Drink good wine. Yeah.
2: Well, Peter, yeah. drinking days are over. He drank his fair share. But anyway, he's, uh, yeah, we just want to hang in there and yeah. raise our two beautiful girls and their adorable children. <laughs> See that happen? Yep.
1: Fantastic. Well, well thank you both so much yeah. for your time today, for your stories, for your hospitality on this lovely August day. And we'll go ahead and let you off the hook. Sure. Well, thank, thank you.
0: you. The Oregon Wine History Archive podcast is brought to you by the Oregon Wine History Archive at Linfield University. The executive producer is Kiana Anderson. Producers are Rich Schmidt, Rachel Woody, Stephanie Hoffman, and Camille Weber. Special thanks to all the Linfield Archive students who have assisted on our oral history interviews.